Hello there, I'm Joshua Roberts, attorney at law, and you're watching Lawyer Up. In this episode, we continue the series on DWIs, and we're going to be talking about the law enforcement officer encounter at the side of the road, the investigation into whether the driver has been drinking and driving, or whether the driver is intoxicated. We're going to look at field sobriety tests. We're going to look at that age-old question, should you blow? Should you take the breathalyzer test? And what I say in that regard may surprise you. We're going to look at the alcohol influence report, which is written up to memorialize the investigation by the officer into the driver and their intoxication. So if you learned something today, hit that like button. If you got something to say, comment below. If you want to know more about the law, subscribe. And if you don't mind, and you think you've got friends that might benefit from this channel, share it on social media. Remember, I am a lawyer, but I am not your lawyer. If you need legal advice specific to your situation, you need to lawyer up with an attorney in your area. The first thing we need to talk about is the law enforcement officer encounter. Now, there are generally three different ways that a driver will come in contact with a law enforcement officer. Uh, number one is uh, a traffic violation. Uh, a driver will ro roll through a stop sign, or they're speeding, or maybe they are weaving in and out of traffic. Uh, you could have a tire be on the fog line or cross the center line. And the officer will initiate what is initially a traffic stop. Another way you can come into contact with a law enforcement officer is through a standard DWI checkpoint. They don't need any probable cause or have any other reason to pull you over. You're going through a checkpoint for the specific investigation of intoxicated drivers. Finally, an automobile accident can cause an officer to come to a scene and investigate uh, as to whether any of the drivers are intoxicated. I've represented multiple clients that were involved in fender benders or small accidents that weren't even their fault, but they got a DWI because they were driving in an impaired condition. So assuming that the driver is getting pulled over, the driver will want to pull over to the side of the road as far over as they can get. Now I've got other videos that talk about dealing with traffic tickets and they talk about trying to park in areas that are safe for both you and the officer. I'm not going to repeat all of that information here, but if you want to know more about that, look up my traffic tickets video under this Lawyer Up channel. So the first thing that the law enforcement officer is going to do is essentially visit with you about the reason of the stop. Now they're going to know fairly quickly whether or not they think that you may have been drinking. And they'll generally ask, have you been drinking tonight? And how you answer that question determines the next hour of your life. Now just because you say no doesn't mean you're going to get out of a ticket. But if you say yes, then it's going to trigger a series of questions and observations that are going to be made by the officer. And they're going to ask you questions. Um, and of course they care about your answers, but they're looking beyond what you're saying. They're looking at your eyes. They want to know if you've, you've got glassy eyes, that it's evidence of intoxication. They are smelling your breath. Does your breath smell like intoxicants? They're listening to your speech. Are your words slurred? Are you talking really fast? Are you really nervous? Do you otherwise sound intoxicated? Generally, after a little bit of conversation with you, the officer will make a judgment call as to whether he thinks that you might be intoxicated. And if he believes that you are, or she, uh, they're going to ask you to step out of the car and do some field sobriety tests. Now let's talk a little bit about what a field sobriety test is and where it comes from. Now officers, as part of training in the academy, will take some training in DWI detection. 
and how to properly administer a field sobriety test. Now the National Highway Transportation Safety Administration, they put out a manual on how to properly do a field sobriety test. And this organization has done extensive studies on field sobriety tests and their validity. And these studies go back 30, 40, 50 years where they have taken a large number of officers. They've performed field sobriety tests on groups of people. The officers make a determination whether they think they're intoxicated or not. And then they go over and take a breathalyzer uh, and they determine how accurate these field sobriety tests are at, at being able to detect an intoxicated driver. And over the years, this National Highway Traffic Safety Administration, it's abbreviated NHTSA, has determined that the three most reliable field sobriety tests are the horizontal gaze nystagmus test, the walk and turn test, and the one leg stand test. In fact, in the alcohol influence reports, which are the police reports that officers use when they are uh, doing an investigation into a DWI, those field sobriety tests are pre-printed right there on the forms for officers to use. Now there's all kinds of other field sobriety tests, but they're just not as accurate as these three. In fact, NHTSA says that the accuracy of it, each test is as follows. The one leg stand test is accurate 65% of the time in determining if someone's intoxicated. The walk and turn test is accurate 68% of the time. Finally, the horizontal gaze nystagmus test is accurate 77% of the time, according to the research and studies done by NHTSA. Further, when all three of these tests are combined with one individual, the accuracy jumps to 82%. And while that sounds fairly accurate, what it means is that one in every five times, the officer gets it wrong. So let's first talk about the horizontal gaze nystagmus test. And this is probably something you've seen where they hold a stimulus or a pencil or something out in front of the eye and they go from side to side like this. And your job is to track it. Then they'll hold it out about 45 degrees and have your eye kind of staring at it for a period of time. And what they're looking for is nystagmus. And what nystagmus means is twitching. When you're under the influence of alcohol, your eye will involuntarily twitch. There's nothing you can do about that. And that's what the officers are looking for when they perform the horizontal gaze nystagmus test. They're looking for the lack of smooth pursuit of your eyeball as they pass it in front of you. And then when they put it at what they call maximum deviation, which is about 45%, they're looking for your eye to be twitching. That's exactly what this test is designed to detect. And this test is considered the most reliable test it is roughly 75% accurate. However, that means that the officer is wrong one out of every four times. The problem is there can be other causes of nystagmus other than intoxicants. Some people have nystagmus naturally. Their eyes just twitch. There is something called optiokinetic nystagmus, which is swiftly contrasting images, uh, which could be a car going by. Those types of things can cause the eye to twitch. This includes if the officer's hazard lights are on, being able to see uh, the cherries on the top of the cop car out of the corner of your eye or headlights from cars going by can create a twitching response in the eye. There's a condition called vestibular nystagmus and that's a condition of the ears, nose, and throat that can cause an eye to twitch that is wholly unrelated to alcohol or intoxicants. Certain medications can cause nystagmus. You could have an eye that was uh, twitching without having ingested any alcohol at all. Finally, eye fatigue. Your eyes can just be tired. And that includes a gaze nystagmus test that goes on too long. 
can create eye fatigue. And when your eye is fatigued, it can twitch, which would be an indicator of intoxicants when you're not intoxicated. All these are reasons why a gaze nystagmus test isn't 100% accurate. It's only accurate about three-fourths of the time because there are other reasons that your eye could twitch. Next, the other field sobriety test is the walk and turn test. And what this entails is you take 10 steps down, you turn around, and you take 10 steps back. Now, you have to step in a line. Basically, you're walking on a tightrope, if you will, and you have to touch down heel to toe, meaning that your heel should touch the front toe of your other foot as you take these steps. Sounds simple, right? Well, it ain't. First off, human beings don't walk like that. We walk with our feet side by side. We don't walk in a line on a tightrope. Second, we don't step heel to toe. That's not how we walk. It's easy to trip that way. We put one foot in front of the other on each side. We don't walk like we're on a high wire. And the bad news is when the officer is observing this walk and turn test, you're gonna get counted against if you stop, if you don't touch heel to toe, if you step off the line, if you do an improper turn when you get to the end of the line, if you don't take the exact number of steps down or the exact number of steps back, and most importantly, if you use your arms to balance. In fact, if you raise your hands more than six inches off of your thighs, it's counted against you and is an indicator of intoxicants. The problem with that is, is that it's human nature when we're balancing or walking on a tightrope, just extend your arms for balance. Even if you don't need to, a lot of people will do that anyway. So I call the walk and turn test kind of a carnival game. It looks easy, but in reality, it's very difficult to do, which is exactly why it's only accurate about two thirds of the time. Because if an individual has any amount of physical disability or problems, they're not gonna be able to perform this type of a walk and turn test. It doesn't mean you're intoxicated necessarily. It just means you can't perform this particular carnival game. Similar to this is the one leg stand test. It's accurate about two thirds of the time as well. And this requires you to raise one of your legs six inches to hold your foot parallel to the ground and to count to 30 while keeping your arms at your side. Again, you can't extend your arms to balance while you're doing this test. The officer is looking for any type of a swaying and that would be front to back or left to right. The officer is looking to see whether you use your arms to balance. The officer is gonna mark you off if you hop. And of course you'll be marked down if you put your foot down during the count to 30. Again, it's kind of like a carnival game. It seems really, really simple when in fact it's not easy to do. And that's exactly why it's wrong a third of the time. You can fail the test and a third of the time the person is not intoxicated. They just can't perform the physical test. When officers combine all three of these field sobriety tests, they can detect intoxication about 80% of the time, which is very good. However, that means one in five, they get it wrong. As a criminal defense attorney, I tell my clients that if you're physically able to, and it's a first offense for you, this is your first DWI, then go ahead and attempt the field sobriety test. I tell my clients if you are not physically able to, or if it's a second or a, a, a third or even more uh, of a DWI offense, do not perform the field sobriety test. They can only hurt you and they can only be evidence used against you when you're in court. So what happens after the field sobriety test? Well, generally the officer will ask you to take a portable breath test if they have it. This is a device that looks kind of like a, a CB 
uh, that you blow into that give the officer some indication of what your uh, blood alcohol content is. Now, not all officers have one of these in their vehicle, but if they do, they'll generally ask you to blow into it. And it tells the officer uh, a couple of things. One of them, if you're obviously impaired and you blow straight zeros, that officer knows that you're intoxicated by drugs not alcohol, and they need to get a drug recognition expert on the scene to do the field sobriety test or to do the determinations of whether you are in fact intoxicated by an illegal drug. Now, portable breath tests are not admissible in a court of law, and the reason is they're just not as reliable as the formal breathalyzers you have down at the station. These portable breath tests are subject to temperature fluctuations and being in the officer's vehicle they are uh, subject to radio frequency interference. Um, there are carryover contaminant problems where they really aren't able to accurately flush themselves from being used prior to or afterwards um, like the formal breathalyzer machines are. These portable breath tests also uh, usually give too much value to residual mouth alcohol is what it's called, and that's the alcohol that's in your mouth. Uh, and gives uh, too, too great a weight to that and not the actual alcohol that's in your system and in your bloodstream. Finally, there's some chemistry problems with these portable breath tests that involve the metabolism of ethanol. I don't pretend to know anything about that. All I know is that the exact BAC reading on these portable breath tests are not admissible in a court of law. Now, an officer can say, I did give them the portable breath test and it did test positive for alcohol but that's as far as they can usually go in most states. Of note is that the field sobriety test and the portable breath test are not part of a state's implied consent law. And what that means is that if you don't take them, it's not gonna be necessarily held against you and it's not gonna violate the state's uh, rules and laws that require you to take breath tests. That is what's coming up down at the station. So after the field sobriety test and the portable breath test, if you take it, the officer will make a determination as to whether to place you under arrest for suspicion of DWI. And that's where they put the cuffs on. You get in the back of their car and they take you down to the station. Now, when you're at the police station, the officers are going to set you down next to a breathalyzer machine. And this is a bigger, more formal machine. Looks kind of like a home printer. Uh, and it's larger, it's got a keyboard attached to it. Some of the newer ones have touch screens. And that is the formal machine that's going to uh, register your blood alcohol content for later proceedings in court. Now, the officer is going to read you your state's implied consent law. And essentially what it says is that when you got your driver's license, you agreed to do certain things. And that was to pass a written test, to pass a driving test, uh, you agree to insure your car, uh, to get it titled, to pay uh, property taxes on it if that's uh, something that, that is, applies in your state. And you also agreed not to drive with a blood alcohol content above a .08. And you may say, hmm, when did I agree to do that? Well, you didn't formally agree to do that. And that's why it's called implied consent because they are implying your consent in exchange for you agreeing or accepting the driver's license. So in all 50 states, there's an implied consent law that says that if you're asked by a law enforcement officer to take a formal breathalyzer test down at the station, you must do so or you lose your license for a year on the spot. Now there'll be an observation period where the officer will observe you for 15 or 20 minutes to make sure you don't put anything in your mouth, to make sure you don't throw up into your mouth or do other things that might contaminate the test.
But then at the end of that 20 minutes, you're going to have to make a decision. Do I blow or do I not blow? And here's what I tell people. And different lawyers will tell you different things. There are different circumstances that could cause you to do something different. So don't take my advice. You want to get your own lawyer and talk to your own lawyer in your own state. However, what I tell my clients is that if it's a first offense, go ahead and blow. If there isn't an accident, you didn't hurt anybody or commit a vehicular felony, it's okay to go ahead and blow. If it's a second offense or a third or more, you definitely do not want to blow. And the reason is, on a first offense, your punishment, even if you blow above a .08, is going to be less than if you refuse. If you blow above a .08 on your first offense, essentially your license is going to be suspended for roughly 90 days. Uh, if you refuse, it's suspended for a year. So the punishment on the driver's license side is actually less if you go ahead and blow. So I tell my clients on a first offense, take the test and cooperate. It will actually work out to your benefit in the end. If it's a second or third or you're in an accident and you hurt somebody, you can't take the breathalyzer test. If you take the test, ultimately the machine will print out your results and that usually is the end of the investigation. The officer will draw up a report and usually issue you a ticket for DWI. Now what happens if you refuse? Uh, one of two things can happen, and here's what happens in most states. Most states allow an officer to get a search warrant, a warrant that allows them to take your blood. They can take your blood, whether you agree or not, and send it to a lab to get a blood alcohol content reading. So in certain instances, refusing the breathalyzer test uh, doesn't make sense. Uh, in certain instances, it does, because you don't want to add to any additional evidence against you. However, when they take your blood, not much you can do about that. The truth is going to be in the pudding, right? Ultimately, they're going to get a uh, result back from the lab that indicates your blood alcohol content. So in reality, there is no way to cheat the system. There's no way to avoid a DWI. If you're intoxicated and you're driving, you're more likely than not going to get convicted, which is why I tell people, don't drink and drive. Nothing in this video should be construed as a how-to of how to get out of a DWI. That's not the purpose of this video. The purpose is to give you information about what happens during a DWI investigation. And I hope that I have today. I hope you have enjoyed this video. And if you've learned something, hit that like button. If you have friends that you think might benefit from this information, then uh, share it on social media. If you want to know more about the law and continue in this series, hit that subscribe button. If you got something to say, put it in the comments below. That's all for this particular episode. Next, we're going to move on to what happens after you get that ticket and you move into the judicial process and into the courtroom in handling your DWI charge. Thanks for watching. Send lawyers, guns, and money.